Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Have you ever wished you could have 15 minutes, or better yet, an hour, to speak with a favorite character from history? My first choice would be the hero of two worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette, whose incredible life story was just recently brought to life by best-selling New York Times author and history podcaster Mike Duncan in his new book, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. We may not have Lafayette here today, but we've got the next best thing, author Mike Duncan, having returned from four years in France with the incredible story of a wealthy teenager from France who sailed to America with a dream that he could change the world for the better, and he did. Welcome, Mike Duncan, to 1001 Heroes. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. What inspired you to write this book, and what surprised you most about Lafayette? Uh, the inspiration for the book uh, comes out of doing my Revolutions podcast, which you know each season of Revolutions covers a different major political revolution in world history, and uh, I, uh, you know, and it go, and it moves chronologically. So. I was doing a series on the American Revolution and knew that the next season I was going to do was about the French Revolution. So I, I decided to pay kind of close attention to anybody who was involved in the American Revolution who then goes on to play a role in the French Revolution. And I think the two biggest of them being uh, Lafayette, of course, um, but also Tom Paine, right? Because Tom Paine also shows up in the French Revolution as a great, as a big role in it. So then, so I start paying attention to this 19-year-old teenager who's run away from home and, and joins the Continental Army. And then I move on to the French Revolution and found that he actually played a, a much bigger role in the French Revolution than I originally anticipated him playing. Um, he's, he's involved in all the reform movements up to uh, 1789. And then he's really one of the most influential figures all the way through 1789, 1790, 1791, 1792. And I'm like, God, this guy is just, I can't get, he's amazing. He's everywhere. Then of course he gets evicted from the French revolution because he runs afoul of the Jacobins. And I, my sort of limited understanding of his life was, well, that's it for him. You know, he, he did the French revolution and then he probably just lived the rest of his life in retirement. And as I continued to move through these years, um, I just find him continuing to pop back up. He's he's in the room in 1815 when Napoleon is abdicating the throne. He's involved in these secret underground conspiracies in the early 1820s. He's now like in his mid-50s uh, to overthrow Louis XVIII. He's intimately involved in the Revolution of 1830 as a 70-year-old as a man trying to squeeze back into his old National Guard uniform. And so by the time that he finally dies in 1834, I'm, I'm now in my sixth season. I start, He shows up in the second season. <laughs> I'm now in the sixth season. And he's still around. And this is just at the time when my publisher is coming around saying, hey, you know, your first book did OK. Would you like to write another book? And I said, yes. And I've got this guy. I really want to go back to the beginning of his life and retell his life story and all of these revolutions as one continuous narrative from his perspective, because he was everywhere. He talked to everybody. He was involved in practically everything. You did a fantastic job in the book. I enjoyed it very much. The Marquis de Lafayette, if I had to pick five people that I'd most like to talk to, he would be one of them. I didn't know a lot. I thought I knew a little bit, and I did know just about a little bit, but when I looked in this book and I went through it, I, it was a page turner. Like you just said, I couldn't believe he was involved in so many things uh, after after his involvement here, giving us freedom in the United States, in America. Uh, then he goes on for another 50 years, uh, just an incredible, incredible human being. 
I wanted to ask you, and this is for our listeners too, how was Ben Franklin involved in Lafayette's mission to America? Uh, ben Franklin plays a pretty significant role, I think, in getting uh, getting Lafayette sort of in in through the door. You know, La, uh, Ben Franklin is probably the one who who ultimately propped open the door to get Lafayette into the Continental Army, um, because there's a lot of backs. If you read the book, Hero of Two Worlds, uh, there's an entire chapter about how Lafayette, a young teenage Lafayette, gets hooked up with Silas Dean and gets recruited into the Continental Army, and he sails he sails across the Atlantic bearing this commission as a major general, and then he shows up kind of unannounced on the doorstep of the Second Continental Congress and says like, "Hey, you know, your guy back in Paris commissioned me as a major general," and they said, "You know, we didn't ask him to do that. You're 19 years old. You have no experience. Um, why don't you go ahead and get lost?" Is essentially what John Hancock and 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 uh, and and Morris uh, um, William Morris said to him. Uh, but then just at that same time, a letter arrives from Ben Franklin saying, you know, this kid who is about to show up on your doorstep is an incredibly well-connected, uh, aristocrat. He knows the King and Queen of France personally. He runs in that set. He married into one of the most powerful families in France. We should treat him well. We should cultivate him. This kid is going to be an enormously valuable political asset because everybody in the Second Continental Congress, everybody in the Continental Army uh, knew that in order to beat the British, ultimately the Americans were going to have to enlist the aid of the French. Most especially we need the French Navy, um, but we also need French money. We need French loans. We need French uh, We need French armaments. We need supplies. Uh, and Lafayette represented in their minds a conduit to that French wealth and French backing. And so it's it's the letter that George Washington is reading from Ben Franklin saying, you know, treat this kid differently that gets, I think, Lafayette into George Washington's tent. And then as as we go forward, you know, you skip ahead a couple of years, Lafayette does go back to France to do all of these things that people expected him to do, which is lobby the French government for support. And Ben Franklin is over there. And, you know, Franklin and Lafayette spend a year kind of tag team in the French government and they get along very well. Uh, uh, Franklin, Franklin likes Lafayette a lot and Lafayette likes Franklin a lot. And they're going into meetings together. Lafayette is, you know, playing this sort of like, you know, as I'm describing it in the book, Lafayette would go in there as this young, bouncy, eager, excitable young man saying like, oh, we need to do this. We need to do this. And then he would leave and Ben Franklin would be the kind of like, you know, the the calming influence and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's very excitable, but like, no, seriously, we need money. Um, and it worked very well. You know, they were they were absolutely successful at it. And, you know, Franklin gets the lion's share of the credit, obviously, for um, for negotiating French, uh, the French alliance. Lafayette is integral to that. And Franklin himself um, uh, was happy to to give him credit for it. Lafayette's life had more ups and downs than Frank Sinatra's singing career. What was his <laughs> what was his high what was his high moment, do you think? And what was his lowest moment? Oh, um, they come they come pretty quick. Uh, absolutely. His highest moment. It, there's actually a very specific date. Uh, it is July the 14th, 1790. It is one year after the French Revolution has begun. And Lafayette was, as I said, uh, very much a part of the movement that it's a reform movement that ultimately blows up into being a revolution. Um, and Lafayette is one of the most famous, influential, richest, uh, best known uh, uh, members of this liberal noble elite who are who are trying to reform the government. And so 1789 comes along 
that everything that had the Estates General, the fall of the Bastille, the Women's March on Versailles, like it is 1789 is an incredibly tumultuous, crazy year um, that winds up the at the other side being like, OK, it seems like maybe the chaos is behind us. We're, we're going to have a constitutional monarchy. We're going to have a declaration of rights. Um, and we're going to move forward now. And I think that in early 1790, everybody kind of thought that the, the French Revolution was going to be confined to 1789. It wasn't actually going to be a bigger event than that. The French Revolution was now kind of ending. And so they, the, the people of Paris threw this enormous banquet in July on July 14th, 1790, celebrating the one year anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. And it was really meant to be like the final reconciliation. You know, the chaos is over. The revolution is behind us. Um, now we will come together as a nation and move forward. And Lafayette was at the the literally the center of that ceremony. He was at that point serving as uh, commander general of the National Guard. And so in this huge I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people on the Champ de Mars. Um, you know, the king is there, the National Assembly there and literally standing in between them is the Marquis de Lafayette, who more than any other person represented what the French Revolution was supposed to at that moment represent, which is liberty, equality, a constitution, and a declaration of rights. And so this, and I, you know, I literally wrote, uh, there's a chapter in the book called the, um, uh, the Zenith of His Influence, which is a quote from an American minister. So that's beyond question, the greatest day of Lafayette's life. The French Revolution, however, does not stop in 1789. As we all know, it moves on to the reign of terror and uh, and Jacobin radicalism and, and Lafayette winds up the other side. So all of that. So his, his biggest day takes place in 1790. In 1792, he is now on the run from a death warrant and he is apprehended by the Austrians and he is thrown into a literal dungeon. Um, he spends five years in Austrian and Prussian custody, them, the, those two governments kind of passing him back and forth. And, uh, and they blamed him for starting the French revolution. They held him responsible for it in a way that was, you know, kind of true. He, he really did start the French revolution and, uh, and was, you know, he was a part of it. Um, and it was not house arrest. It was not, we're going to put you in a chateau and you can't leave. It was not, uh, it was not, oh, well, you can stay in these really nice apartments. Uh, these were literal dungeon conditions. He was in solitary confinement off and on for five years. It almost killed him. He His health collapsed, you know. Um, so I, I think that probably any one of those days, sitting alone in a dungeon, slowly dying, uh, and probably not believing he was ever going to get out of it, and he would just one day expire in one of these dungeon cells. Uh, you know, I, any one of those, I think, we would call his lowest point. I've always been impressed by the fact that here's a 19-year-old kid showing up to George Washington, and Washington's got a lot of worries. He's got a lot of snakes in the garden, and true, he needs a lot of help. What was it or who was it that really put the trust in Washington's mind? I'm going to trust this young guy, and I'm going to give him a responsible position. I'm going to let him lead an army of 1,500 men. How did he make that transition so fast? Was Washington just an excellent judge of character? I mean, in some cases he wasn't. In some cases he he had the wrong people, and or at least people's egos got away with them. <laughs> well, he uh, sure did put Benedict Arnold in charge of West Point. Yep, <laughs> right. But hey, you know, Benedict Arnold fooled a lot of people. Um, I think it, it really. I think it comes down to Brandywine uh, more than anything yeah. else, uh, because when you know, like I said, you know, Ben Franklin gets Lafayette in the tent, gets him in the door. But he's clearly they're cultivating this kid for political reasons. 
when the Second Continental Congress approves Lafayette's commission as a major general, they think of this is entirely ceremonial. Uh, this is just to flatter the vanity and the ego of this kid so that he goes back and says nice things about us to the people uh, who are in charge of the French budget. But very quickly, you know, Lafayette, Lafayette believes that he has been commissioned as a major general and he's going to serve as a soldier. And this is what Lafayette has always wanted for himself. And so we we move forward very quickly to Brandywine, which is only about um, it's really a matter of weeks. He get he gets commissioned on July 31st in Brandywine is what, like September 6th? No, no, is it October? Oh, I'm getting my dates mixed up. Somewhere in the early um, fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Lafayette is there for that battle as uh, as Gates is coming around and he's moving on Philadelphia. And when Cornwallis's troops outflank the Continental Army at Brandywine, Lafayette tells George Washington, I want to go over and help support that crumpling line. And Washington says, okay, do it. And Lafayette goes over there, and he so he's not clearly uh, somebody who's just in it um, to to play act. You know, he's not just there to like have a little adventure. He believes he's a soldier, and that there's a problem happening, and he should run towards this problem, not away from it. He runs around. He gets wounded. You know, he gets shot through the leg. Um, he is bleeding profusely. He is kind of delirious from a loss of blood. This is where Washington then finds him and says, okay, we're retreating. I need you to fall back. And Lafayette says, okay, gets on his horse. He falls back. Um, while Lafayette is retreating, it's incredibly chaotic. I mean, this is just people running away from a battle. He comes across this bridge that would be very, it's very important to control this bridge so that the rest of the army can get away. And Lafayette looks at this and realizes there's no real um, control of this bridge. No, there's no order here. It's just people running. And so he stops at the bridge. And as as uh, as fleeing soldiers are running the battle, he's intercepting them and saying, we have to hold this bridge for everybody else. And so he does. He manages to wrangle like a company of soldiers together. They hold the bridge. People are getting away. This is the next place that George Washington finds him wounded and having organized the defense of this key bridge so that other, so that all these other soldiers that Lafayette doesn't know, he's only been in the army for like four or six weeks. It's not like these are his old comrades. He obviously has enough um, charismatic authority to be able to you know, impress upon these running soldiers. Hey, no, you have to stop and hold this bridge with me. Um, so I think this is the moment when Washington rides finds him the second time and is like, okay, maybe this kid is actually different. He's not just a political asset. Uh, maybe he does have some chops here as a soldier and maybe I can rely on him. And then it just and then it just sort of builds from there. He, he Washington slowly divvies out more and more responsibility. And each time he does like go go lead 50 guys now go lead 250 guys. Um, and each time Lafayette acquits himself uh, quite admirably until the point when, you know, by 1780, 1781, it's like, you know, go take over the campaign in Virginia for me, which Lafayette does. And I think acquitted himself quite well. Yeah, that was surprising, too, uh, at the surrender of Yorktown when Lafayette and Cornwallis, and that, this surprised me, when they actually sat down and talked to each mm -hmm. other and compared strategies on a map. And Cornwallis was extremely impressed with Lafayette, wanted to talk to him. That was a great, uh, largely unknown uh, moment there in your book that I enjoyed very much. Yeah. And, you know, those those, you know, the officers, they're all professional soldiers and they were all they all shared sort of the profession of arms. And so they when they were in combat with each other, like, of course, they were trying to, like, kill each other and defeat each other. But then as soon as there's a truce, you know, they're like getting together and and going back over the last couple months and Cornwall in Lafayette's like, oh, yeah, I was here. And Cornwallis is like, oh, God, I was two hours behind you. I almost had you. Um, 
And they actually, you know, Cornwallis lives, you know, uh, for, for many more decades and at least as late. I think the last one was uh, during the Napoleonic Empire period. Um, you know, Lafayette, Lafayette and Cornwallis often found themselves at dinner together and would sit next to each other. And they had like an ongoing relationship for the rest of their lives. Another one of those uh, history's hidden moments. Uh, and, I, and I've looked for references to this moment in a lot of history books, only found it in one, and it was just a, a sentence or two in Glorious Cause. But it was the okay. moment when Washington met with Rochambeau uh, mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to actually secure his assistance in, in blocking in uh, the British at Yorktown. And that was a kind of a secret trip that he took up there. I was amazed uh, to find out in your book that uh, riding with him was Benedict Arnold. Well, yeah, at, uh, because at this point, Benedict Arnold is one of the most um, he's one of the most famous war heroes that the Americans have. Um, you know, if you were if you're going to list on uh, on one hand, the, the most famous, most stalwart patriotic war heroes up to that point, which is now, you know, where the, the war started in 1775 and we are now in like 1778. Benedict Arnold is at the top of that list. You know, it's basically like George Washington, Benedict Arnold is number two. It had to be um, very close to Arnold's treason uh, because the months are closing in here on, uh, oh, on 1781. Oh, right. oh, yeah, as they, the, the company, like, and going to that meeting with Rochambeau is when the treason is discovered. So they pass, they pass West Point. Uh, Arnold comes down to meet him, ferry him, talk to him. They go, the party meets with Rochambeau, like Washington and his entourage go and meet with Rochambeau. And then as they are coming back, they're going to swing back through West Point again and check in on Arnold. And Arnold is not there. And none of the none of the reinforcements and fortifications that he said he was undertaking had been done. And they are just mystified what is actually going on. And this is when the satchel shows up saying that, you know, we've been, we, we intercepted this who we think is a spy. And here's a satchel full of things we found. And this is when they discovered all of this incriminating documentation that Arnold for, for at least a year had been a British spy and was planning on overturn and turning West Point over uh, to the Americans. And Lafayette was there for all of this. You know, he was in, he's in the room as, you know, Washington is crying, um, and as Washington says, and I put this in the book, you know, if we can't trust Arnold, who can we trust? And it, I think it is underestimated in in our in our understanding of history how big of a betrayal this was, um, because for us today, like 200 years later, Benedict Arnold is literally synonymous with treason. Like yep. if somebody if somebody betrays you, they're a, they're they they're a Benedict Arnold. And uh, but until that betrayal, he was. He was a war hero. He was beloved. He was he was the most ardent, most stalwart patriot uh, anybody could possibly name. Yeah, we've had some terrible spies exposed, but Arnold still carries it, doesn't he? After all yeah, these years, yeah, he really does. Yeah. Could you describe Lafayette's meeting with James Armistead on on Lafayette's return trip to America in 1784? That was a real uh, that was one another one of those kind of hidden moments in history that it, it was just very poignant. Yeah, sure. So James Armistead was an enslaved man who was who was in Virginia, and he wound up attached to um, 
uh, uh, Cornwallis's entourage. So, so like he's sort of he's sort of uh, attached to the British Army, um, and he's very close to the inner circle of of, of the officer corps around Cornwallis. And Lafayette is able to suborn Armistead as a spy for the Continental Army. This is one of the things that Lafayette would often do for for Washington. Washington was a big spy master. Washington loved having spies because you know he's a good general and he knows that intelligence is is what is important. Um, so Lafayette uh, suborns Armistead as a spy, uh, uses the intelligence that they get to good effect. Like like this is a very valuable source of information. Um, and then Lafayette, you know, Yorktown happens, Lafayette goes home, the war starts to, to sort of break down and, uh, and, and people start going home. Lafayette returns in 1784 to go on a, a return tour of the United States, re-meet with all of his friends, uh, you know, continue his intimate involvement with the United States now that they have won independence. And as he's passing through Virginia, he, Armistead is petitioning the, the government of Virginia for his freedom and saying, Look, I you know, I was a veteran. I helped I helped win independence. I did know I have, you know, letters of recommendation from people. And as Lafayette comes through, he's like, "Will you basically Lafayette, will you write me a letter of recommendation?" And Lafayette's like, "Yeah, of course I will." Because at this point in his own life, Lafayette is about a year into his own lifelong commitment to the abolition of slavery. Lafayette is one of um one of the founding people out of the founding generation who very early moves towards and if the revolution is going to mean anything it it will mean the end of slavery i mean how can liberty and slavery can be compatible with each other they they simply are not um so lafayette writes a writes a very uh, good letter of recommendation to armistead uh saying to to the state government of virginia saying yeah you should free this guy like immediately uh and then he goes on now of course it takes two more years for the Virginia state government to actually free this guy who had risked his own life on behalf of the Continental Army and deserved his freedom. Absolutely, he did. And But when he finally got it, he took the surname Lafayette. And so he spent the rest of his life as uh, known as James Armistead Lafayette. As you mentioned before, a lot of people blamed Lafayette for the French Revolution in 1792. Who was it that pretty much twisted that out of Lafayette's grasp? Lafayette obviously was was an idealist, and he saw the liberty and the freedom in one way. Who was it who was actually actually able to twist it in a different direction? Was that Robespierre involved? Well, yeah, it's it's really a matter of Lafayette finding himself caught defending a position that nobody really wanted. Um, Lafayette's vision for the French Revolution is for it to end with something like what the British had going on, which was a constitutional monarchy with guaranteed individual rights. You know, basically a bill of rights is what the Declaration of Rights and of the citizen is representing in the French political context, um, but not going full on republic. Uh, Lafayette did not think that the French, given their, you know, thousand year roots in monarchy, their sort of lack of real um, uh, experience with democratic self-government because it was an absolutist monarchy that was run through that was run through um, the central state that they needed to progress slowly towards what would in effect be a republic um, but you couldn't just up and declare a republic uh, so this puts him in a very particular spot where on the one hand you have all the royalists traditional Catholics 
uh, conservatives who don't want any kind of constitution constraints or bill of rights placed upon the monarchy. They absolutely do not want the overthrow of the aristocracy, which Lafayette is also opposed to hereditary aristocracy. He doesn't think there's any value um, in people's DNA when it comes to whether or not they're going to be a good leader or not. Um, so so all of those people are very much opposed to him. So he, he has no support from the right because they they all think that he is the arch revolutionary who is trying to put the monarchy in this in this horrible box, which is uh, against God, because, you know, the, the God himself has appointed the Bourbons to be the rulers of France. And who are you to undo that? Whereas on his left, what is now we would consider his left are people who say, well, you know, if we're going to go all the way, if everybody's equal, if we're doing liberty and equality, then why have any of the trappings of monarchy? Why have any of the trappings of aristocracy? We don't need any of this crap. We can just get rid of it. And look, even your own friends over there in the United States, by the way, what did they do? They kicked out their king. They don't have a king anymore. They got a republic, a constitution. Why can't we have that stuff? Um, so the revolution moved socially and in a broad sense, f more to the left than Lafayette wanted to see it go. So by 1792, there is enormous tension between the conservatives who don't want any revolution at all and want to just react, pure reactionaries who want to go back to the way things were, and then these radical forces who want to move directly towards a universal republic with universal liberty and universal equality. And Lafayette was caught in the middle of this and had essentially no allies left when 1790 when the insurrection of 1792 rolls around and it is people like Robespierre Danton, Desmoulins, um the radical jacobins who overthrew the monarchy finally um and declared a republic. Now they overthrew the monarchy in part because Louis and Marie Antoinette were absolutely in league with the Austrians and the Prussians trying to get them to come into the country and overthrow the revolution. So all of the things that were um that drove the radical push towards overthrowing the monarchy were true. You know, Louis and Marie Antoinette were guilty of what would be considered national treason. Um, but Lafayette still wa was still willing to defend them and prop up the monarchy because he thought it was necessary for structural reasons for, for France not to lose the monarchy, which I'm not sure he was necessarily wrong about. Uh, but that's that's how he just winds up completely homeless. And he's got no he's got no allies to his left. He's got no allies to his right. And all the people on the left who overthrew the monarchy, one of the first things they did was turn around and issue a warrant for his arrest because they believed that he was one of the people who was trying to betray the revolution by supporting the Bourbons. We'll return to our interview with Mike Duncan right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I was researching lost treasure in the Chesapeake Bay last year and came up with a story on Lafayette. And I'm very curious to know if that ever came up in any of your uh, researching. Apparently, when Washington badly needed money, which was all the time, uh, Lafayette said, I can get money for you. He uh, somehow got message to either his people or some contacts in France who loaded up a small sailing ship with money and sailed it over into the Chesapeake Bay. And they were supposed to be a group that met that ship at an island about halfway up the bay, which would be right around the border of Virginia and Maryland. And they were on the south side, I believe, of a small island. I don't know if it was called Cedar Island or if it had another name. It was re- nobody lived on that island. It was remote, but it was the planned meeting spot. Well, apparently a British man of war caught sight of their French sail uh, as they were trying to hide there behind the trees on this island. And they shot the, uh, the sailboat pr- up pretty badly, sank it. And not much more was heard other than Lafayette's treasure sitting off a small island in the Chesapeake Bay. wonder if you ever came across that. Well, I'll tell you, it did not. Um, but that is not for many, you know, like, the, oh, that's not, that story is not true. Or um, uh, it mostly comes from the fact that I was moving quickly through Lafayette's campaigns in Virginia and didn't get caught, tried not to get too caught up in uh, in deep, deep minutia. Yeah. What I do know is that Lafayette, you know, th- this all completely tracks because Lafayette was one of the richest people in France. And one of the things that he did consistently through the revolution is take out personal loans on behalf of the Continental Army. He was paying out of his own pocket uh, the wages of soldiers. If you know, if soldiers were about to mutiny because they hadn't been paid in six months, which was kind of a thing that happened on the regular during the American Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, he would yep. pay him out of his own pocket. He was constantly writing home and send having money sent over uh, to cover his expenses, to cover Congress's expenses, to cover the army's expenses. Um, his finance, there, there's great stuff in the book, as you know, about his financial managers back home absolutely tearing their hair out um, as they <laughs> yes. get more IOUs and more requests for money. And they're like, dude, you're, you're bankrupting yourself. And he, he kind of did, you know, he, yeah. he goes, he goes into the uh, revolution with a large fortune and comes out of it with about, you know, 30% of that fortune left. And most of it was never repaid. Um, so I don't know the specific story of this lost treasure of Lafayette, but I do now. So thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> Discuss a little bit Lafayette's relationship with Napoleon. And what did he think of Napoleon? Yeah. Uh, so Lafayette and Napoleon knew each other were on were on familiar terms with each other they they personally knew each other and it, it or the origin of their relationship is that when as, as we talked about a little bit earlier lafayette spends five years in these dungeon prisons uh, uh held ultimately by the austrians and the reason he is released is because young general bonaparte uh, has made his sort of spectacular entrance onto the world stage with these uh, with these campaigns down in Italy against the Austrians. And after the Battle of Rivoli, uh, the road for the French army that Napoleon is leading to Vienna is wide open. And so 
the Austrians have to capitulate, surrender, and sign a peace treaty. And in this peace treaty is specifically a clause that the Austrians have to release any French state prisoners that are currently being held, Lafayette being the most famous of them. So uh, Napoleon is the one who releases Lafayette from prison. And so Lafayette is, of course, him and his family are eternally grateful to General Bonaparte writing profusive letters of thanks and praise. Um, you know, uh, there, there's nothing but good feelings between them. And then the way that Lafayette ultimately manages to get himself back into France is with the coup of Brumaire. When Napoleon seizes power, he has this nice relationship with Napoleon. And Lafayette crosses the lines and returns to uh, to his wife, so Lagrange, which is his wife's family estates. Um, with the sort of tacit acquiescence of Napoleon. So at this point, they're all very fr they're very friendly with each other. Tally Napoleon and Talleyrand are asking Lafayette if, if uh, he would like to be ambassador to the United States on account of Lafayette having such a great relationship with the Americans, which Lafayette declines because his health isn't so great at this point. But as you move forward, this happens to just about everybody in Europe with Napoleon representing sort of the ideal triumph of the French Revolution in terms of like, we can have liberty, we can have an enlightened government, but also not have it be just chaos and terror and bloodshed. There will also be some order that goes along with it. And this is what Bonaparte seemed to represent um, when he was during the consulate, right? When he was first consul Bonaparte. But then what's he, what is Napoleon doing this whole time? He's just acquiring power for himself and he's growing his own power base. And in 1802, he puts this referendum forward, you know, should my term as first consul now be for life? And he is basically making himself a dictator. And Lafayette is in the people is in the circle of people who qualify to vote in this referendum. And he votes no. And he very pointedly votes no and sends a letter to Bonaparte saying, I'm voting no. I mean, this referendum passes like 99 percent to 1 percent because it's also, you know, rigged. But. Napoleon, uh, excuse me, Lafayette made it very clear to Napoleon that he opposed the life consulate. And then when Napoleon makes himself emperor two years later, man, Lafayette is just completely now in the opposition. Um, and so for the next 10 years, Lafayette is not doing anything overt to overthrow Napoleon. Napoleon is way too powerful. But if anybody came around and and asked, what do you think about Napoleon? What do you think about the empire? What do you think about this imperial system? Lafayette would say, this is not compatible with liberty. This is not compatible with any of the values of the revolution. It's not compatible with what I think should be going on. And so they they existed in this very tense and hostile uh, relationship with one another until you get all the way to the point in 1814, 1815, when Napoleon's empire is collapsing. He's now losing the war. Um, and after Waterloo, when he comes tumbling back in to Paris, Lafayette is in the room with the other with a couple other leaders from Paris telling Napoleon, you have to abdicate the throne now because, you know, it's over for you. You're done. So it was uh, it starts so positively and then ends so negatively. And I think a lot of it just really comes down to Lafayette's relationship with George Washington that Washington had set this mo model and this precedent in Lafayette's mind that a great man who has a lot of power will give up that power if they are truly a, a good person as well as a great leader. Um, and so when he saw Napoleon in roughly the same situation that George Washington found himself in, which is a powerful general in a chaotic situation, George Washington 
refused to take all power and refused to make himself a dictator. And that's now the standard in Lafayette's mind of what a great leader does. When Napoleon does the opposite of that, he's just like, you know, screw you. I don't want to have anything to do with you, um, which is I, which is how it wound up between them. I'm going to give you a real challenge, Mike. I'm going to put you in a room. In 18, okay. It's 1825. Got it. And it's a meeting between Lafayette, Jefferson, Monroe, and Madison. They're, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're great leader. Washington has been dead now for 26 years, I believe. America is, is trying to find its direction in a world after beating uh, Britain twice in war. What do you think was discussed and what made the reunion so bittersweet? Well, yeah, so we're at, we're in Monticello uh, is where this is obviously taking place. And this is Lafayette's return tour uh, to the United States as the last living major general of the Continental Army. Um, you know, Jefferson is uh, not but two years away from death. Madison and Monroe are a little bit younger. But all of these guys, like Lafayette had personal relationships and friendships with all of these guys each in each in their own ways i mean back in 1789 jefferson is um minister to france from the united states and him and lafayette are meeting with each other constantly uh lafayette had had bummed around on a trip to albany and back with young james madison and they maintain correspondence um james monroe who's you know of the three of these is usually like becomes the most obscure in our minds as you know sort of future americans um was not only a young soldier who served in the Virginia campaign when Lafayette was down there, but was also one of the ones who who literally saved uh, Adrienne's life. That's Washington, excuse me, Lafayette's wife during the Reign of Terror. Um, James Monroe and Governor Morris are the two who really told the French government, like, if you kill Lafayette's wife, it is going to be bad news for you guys. Like, you will you will completely lose any support that you have in the United States for what you're trying to do over here. And so James Monroe, to Lafayette and his son, was known as the person who saved Adrienne. Um, so as they're talking, you know, I think on the one hand, there is there are good positive discussions that it was not clear that the United States was going to survive at its infancy in in seven even after winning the war. You know, by 1789, it's not all clear the United States has to survive as a, as a thing. But by 18 by the mid 1820s, I think it's very clear that it is going to succeed um, on the world stage. It's going it's going to remain an independent country. Um, but also, man, this slavery issue is also dividing the country. And we are looking, Lafayette is looking at three major plantation owners, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. They all own slaves. They all have huge plantations there. They are of the slave-owning plantation aristocracy. Um, This is the issue that is going to divide this young country and ultimately lead to a civil war. And Lafayette is an abolitionist. Lafayette does not believe that slavery should continue. He thinks that his three friends ought to free their slaves and ought to move the, use their power, use their influence. These are the most powerful and influential people in the country. And that he thinks they should use all that power and influence to set an example for everybody else, uh, and then lead the country away from slavery. And what makes this sort of period in American history interesting and complicated is that Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe would have all agreed that slavery is bad, that slavery needs to end. Um, we know it's an immoral institution. We, you know, they would say things like, well, we don't like it any more than you do, but you know, what can we possibly do? Um, it's simply too thorny of an issue. If we try to do this, it'll spark a civil war, which, you know, wasn't exactly wrong. Um, 
but also they just sort of thought that slavery would end itself, that slavery was on the way out and, and just sort of the force of history and the force of progress would push slavery to one side, not recognizing or not knowing that what was about to happen is like the cotton gin was going to come along and not and not just revitalize the institution of slavery, but give it an entirely new um, uh, a powerful impetus for the slave owning aristocracy in the South to keep it going. <clears throat> so. They they all would have agreed that slavery is bad, and you know we we have we have eyewitness accounts of these meetings where Lafayette is not ever hesitating to tell his friends we need to end slavery, um, but also them being like yes 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 you're so moral you're so good and we'll definitely get to it eventually, and then none of them ever got to it. Slavery didn't just end itself, um, and Lafayette I think was right that if slavery was going to end. They needed to be the ones to do it. The, the plantation slave owning aristocracy, the leaders of that needed to be the one to dismantle it themselves if it was going to happen peacefully. And when they didn't do it, when they kicked the can down the road and said it's simply too big of a deal, because like for Jefferson, the guy was in, the guy was in debt so much that he couldn't get rid of his slaves because, you know, he's looking at a stack of debts that, you know, he can't he doesn't feel like he can get out from under personally. Um, you know, what frees the slaves? It's ultimately an incredibly destructive, you know, civil war that could have been avoided, I think, had people made the choice to dismantle slavery instead of uh, waiting and waiting and waiting. I think it was possible, just, I think it was impossible just based on our system of government where you had a divided Congress between the South and the slave states, the plantation growers, and the North. Different economies, different motives, different ideals, and there's no way you're going to bring them together. It was just one of those inescapable separations that were go was going to lead to war. Yeah. And this this becomes a bit of a source of Lafayette's, you know, Lafayette gets dinged from time to time for his naivete um, uh, in that he he did believe that the that the American Constitution, as it was written and as it existed, did provide a peaceful path to the emancipation of slavery. Um, and as you say, like, did it really, though, like maybe not. Uh, Certainly when he was lobbying George Washington for all this, when Washington was still alive back in the 1790s, a lot of what Lafayette was leaning on was Washington's own understanding of himself as somebody who set an example. Washington is really big on leading by example. He cares a lot about his personal appearance. He cares a lot about how he carries himself, not just, you know, not just uh, 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 the way he thinks or the way he talks, but the way he literally moves around in space. And so Lafayette's always leaning on him to to do this thing where you set an example and i do i do wonder what happens if those really really important grandees the the first run of presidents you know the virginia dynasty if they had been the ones to take the lead um i do think that things could have gone differently i do think that maybe they could have led their brethren in a different direction um Maybe they were right and they would have, you know, those four or five individuals would have made that move and everybody else would have been like, well, OK, you're you, you've now betrayed us in the entire system that you that we all believe in. Um, but also maybe they do have power and influence and can lead lead it and lead the country in a different direction. Uh, that would provide for a best selling historical fiction. Yeah, had, had those definitely, men taken definitely that direction. historical fiction. You, you might even and you might even say like, Mike. I think maybe you're being a little naive here, um, and it's entirely possible. No, that wasn't. I wasn't really inferring that. I think it would be a good idea for someone to uh, to try and write that, just to basically come up with an idea of what would have happened had they really, in a hard line, taken that direction. It's quite interesting. It was right there for them, and they were being told it. People were telling them to do it, and they didn't do it. 
Where was Lafayette a larger hero, in France or in America? Oh, that one's easy. <laughs> Lafayette <laughs> is a much bigger hero in the United States than he is in France. Um, and I think for under I think for understandable reasons, um, Lafayette's time in the United States, his relationship with the United States, uh, the things that he did while in the United States is almost a universal string of successes. Um, he was on the winning side. He did the right things. He was associated with the right people. He said and did all the right things in terms of his relationship with the United States. So I think it's correct and good that the United States has a tendency to lionize Lafayette more than the French do. Um, the French, on the other hand, I did spend three years living in Paris and researching this book. And when I would go to library, I had a couple of interactions where I, I would go to a library and say, I'm researching a book about the French Revolution. And they would say, what's it about? And I would say, oh, I'm writing a biography of Lafayette. And they said, oh, well, you're an American. Of course, you're writing a biography of Lafayette. You're the only person who ever asks for these things. Um, so <laughs> it's 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 mostly that the French have just kind of, you know, it goes back to what I was saying about him being evicted from the French Revolution, where he kind of didn't have friends on the right or the left. Um, and this continues through all of the debates in French historiography about about the, the nature of the French Revolution, the meaning of the French Revolution, which remains a very current and ongoing debate in French politics, where if you're on the left, you have a set of principles and heroes and ideas that you support about the French Revolution. Whereas if you are on the right and more conservative, um, you have a tendency to, to treat the French Revolution with a great deal of hostility and believe that it was a mistake and that we never should have done it. And Lafayette is kind of homeless in these ongoing political debates about the nature and meaning of the French Revolution because he represents this very, very particular um, outcome that nobody in France really wants because you have the Republicans on one side and you have the old arch Catholic monarchists on the other. Um, and the only people who look at Lafayette and the liberal nobles as representing a, a third way forward are like people from Britain and the United States, basically Anglophone, like Anglophone common commentators, you know, sort of like the jib of uh, like the cut of the jib of the, of the liberal nobles. Um, but nobody in France does. And so like there are also times there's a, there's a very famous um, uh, 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 store in Paris called Galleries Lafayette, where when I said I'm writing a biography of Lafayette, they were like, oh, is it about the guy who founded Galleries Lafayette? And I'm like, no, it's not about that guy who founded Galleries Lafayette. Galleries Lafayette is called that because it was on Lafayette, it was on who the Lafayette, um, which is named after the guy I'm writing a book about. And they go, oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> So I, I think that's what it is. You know, Americans, we love the guy. And I think we have a tendency to maybe overrate him a little bit as a result of, you know, all the nice things that he did for us. But I think the French um, really drastically underestimate uh, his role in French history and how important he was to French history. Because, you know, I, I, if you cut all the way to the end of the book, uh, when he dies, you know, he like he was he was an active politician right up to the end of his life. You know, he's being elected to the Chamber of Deputies. He's a very popular figure. When he dies, you know, hundreds of thousands of people turn out for for his funeral. He is not somebody who was once famous and then died in obscurity. He was somebody who was famous his entire life, was very popular his entire life. When he dies in 1834, 
you know, the, the government of Louis Philippe are worried that it might trigger an insurrection and that they need to give him a military funeral so that there's plenty of soldiers on hand in case Lafayette's funeral turns into uh, an insurrection against what was an increasingly conservative July monarchy. So he he died very popular. He died very famous. And it's only sort of in retrospect that his uh, that his his memory has been lost a little bit. Well, Mike, thank you for an excellent interview. I've enjoyed very much having the opportunity to talk to you, and I know our listeners have enjoyed it as well. How can people find your book, and how do they get in touch with you if they need to? I can um, give them your cell phone number here right now. And then... <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> um, oh, so you can find me. I've written a couple of, uh, I write and produce podcasts, so you can Google up uh, Revolutions Mike Duncan. You'll find my podcast. Uh, if you go back earlier, I wrote uh, an, a complete history of the Roman Empire called The History of Rome. Uh, my book is called Hero of Two Worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution. Uh, one of the things that we have done with this book is we, we all know the easiest one-click way to get a copy of my book. Uh, we all know that website, and we all know how easy it is to do it. Lord knows I do it too. Um, but we have been trying to encourage people to go get Hero of Two Worlds from uh, like a local books, like a local bookstore. Great, local yeah. Books. With there's some, I promise you, somewhere within ten miles of your house, there is a local bookstore who just went through COVID, and everything yep. was brutal and ruthless, and it's been a really hard eighteen months on anybody, so on everybody. I think that's so, great advice. We have a little shop around the corner here too, like everybody does. Great. great, Google that store, call them up, ask, order a copy of the book from them, and and run the sale of the book through that store, not through the website that shall not be named. Who They have plenty of money. They're fine. They did great. <laughs> Mike, thank you very much. And thank you for Hero of Two Worlds. Do you have anything else uh, on the back burner? I know that you're very busy with your podcast. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to finish. The, I'm doing I'm in snorkel in a, a history of the Russian Revolution at the moment. Um, so yeah. as soon, actually, as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to uh, I'm in October 1917. So if you want a complete history of the Russian Revolution, I'm on episode 73 Ooh. and we're in October 1917. OK, well, <laughs> that's I, the level of detail you get when you come hang out with Mike Duncan. And I, yeah, I would imagine your work week is an eight day week, just like mine is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.